Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And joining us as a very special guest this week, because Eloise is watching films in Italy, is the teen cine queen, the global expert on Lady Bird and the woman who knows about coming-of-age films and Twitter personality, Claire White. Thank you very much for joining us. Twitter personality? Yeah, you are a Twitter personality. Thank yeah. you. Well, you've written our bio, a recommendation for I us. I did, and I was actually very excited when that happened. <laughs> well, thank you very much for tweeting it. Oh, thank you. Um, in this month's episode, we're going to look at what's happening on Melbourne's cinema screens in our Cultural Capital Film Diary. We're going to take a look at LA Neo-Noir Under the Silver Lake, as well as sharing an interview that I did with its director, David Robert Mitchell, and compare our top three films of 2019 so far. But first, we're going to take a voyage into the chasm of class difference in Seoul with Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Eclectic South Korean director Bong Joon-ho's Parasite arrives in Australia hot off the heels of its Palm Door win at this year's Cannes Film Festival and after it secured the 2019 Sydney Film Prize at the Sydney Film Festival. At the outset, we're introduced to an impoverished family living in a semi-basement apartment underneath an alleyway. Ki Taek, played by Bong regular Song Kang-ho, and Chung Suik, Jang Hye-jin, live with their two adult children Ki Woo and Ki Jong. The family excels at making the most of straightened circumstances, picking up a nearby cafe's free Wi-Fi, for example, and leaving the window open when the street fumigators walk past so their house can get a dose too. One day the family stumbles into a fantastic scam. Kiwoo's friend works as an English tutor for a wealthy family, but he's heading overseas and needs a replacement. Kiwoo shows up, bluffs his way for his first lesson, and then recommends his sister when it emerges that the family is looking for an art teacher. Before we know it, his entire family has worked its way into this wealthy household, with each of them acting as an English tutor, art tutor, housekeeper, and chauffeur. Without giving too much away, what starts as a dark comedy about lovable grifters and the nice, if exceptionally ignorant, rich family that they scam, becomes something entirely different. Director Bong masterfully conducts his tonal shifts, and the result is one of the best films I think I've seen in quite a long time. Parasite is an exceptionally well-made, entertaining, and even enthralling examination of class in South Korea. Crucially, Bong refuses to ever take the easy way through his dark satire. Andy, you saw this at Cannes where it won the Palm Door. Do you think the hype is justified? Totally. This is like a really deceptive film. Like I noticed, sorry, Claire, to spoil something that you tweeted, that you said you danced down the street, I think, after seeing this? Yes. 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 Yeah, right. I See, I had the kind of opposite reaction. I was like, this is great. This is really, really good. And it's not until afterwards that I was like, this is way better than I thought it was. Yes. This is actually so mm. beautifully put you, together. Like you just said, like the tonal shifts, you barely even notice it happening until it's like, it's, oh, my God, that just happened. Yeah, remarkable. Mm. Yeah, I was tingling all over. I was sitting down to dinner with my friends afterwards. Like, I couldn't get the film out of my head. I was dancing because I've been so kind of underwhelmed by films this year so far. And that was the first time that I actually left a film invigorated and knowing already that that was such a profound, amazing film. Like, I haven't seen a film that good in a while, like you said, Anders. And so that's why I was dancing down the street. Mm. I was just like, yes, cinema is alive. Like, <laughs> I am alive. This is fantastic. Yeah, I my friend actually said he needed a lie down afterwards, and I felt like that was the most accurate 
kind of description as well. And this like, yes, there's so much to process like process i mm. feel the same but also feel like jumping at the same time it is a densely packed film isn't yeah. it um mm, what did sick. you make so a key feature of the film is the way he uh shoots this central house yeah mm. this yeah, yeah. beautiful uh, minimalist um sort of mansion that many of the characters note at various times is designed by this like high-flying architect um mm. What did you make of the filmmaker's use of space here? That was remarkable, actually. And when I interviewed him, I think two people separately asked him, but that's a real house, isn't it? And he had to say, no, 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 it's a set that we designed from scratch. Like everything wow. that you saw in that film is a set apart from what the establishing shot of the outside of that mansion where they're like on the street walking up to oh, it. Oh, with the gate. Yeah, yeah, so they even like, you know, flooded this whole set, you know, when they there's a scene involving a lot of water that they needed to, to do that. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, it was because it looks so real. It looks like really like a place you could you could be in and that Lloyd Wright or someone like that designed. Yeah, I think it's incredible, particularly because he was saying in the interview that he needed to make a, spa- a place that was huge and open and full of light, but also allowed for nooks where you could action could unfold without other people seeing what was happening because there's so much deception going on. That it, well, actually, a lot of it reminded me of Hitchcock. Like there was a lot of straight mm-hmm. lines, a lot of lines that are pointing you towards the action that's happening on the screen. And that whole, this whole idea of deception and, and grift and stuff, but at the same time, like you use the word scam, which is totally accurate, but at the same time, is it? Are they breaking any laws? Like they actually just kind of provide for each other in a way. So like I really love the way that every character is empathetic. There's like no baddies. Everyone's kind of just kind of forced to play these roles because of capitalism. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's what and that's what I really liked about it was that he it's not a simplistic sort of class analogy, I think. You can't it's not just like, oh, you know, the poor people are good guys, the rich people are bad guys. Even though that may be ultimately the I think that might be the final sort of yeah. analysis, yeah, watch yeah. up, but it's way more interesting than that, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which I Actually, the entire time it reminded me because, you know, they're not really bad people and there's every single character is quite sympathetic. Reminds me a lot of Shoplifters, yeah, which won Pandora yeah. last year, um, Coriator, um, because, again, it's very similar. You've got a family of scammers going on. You've got tonal shifts. You've got a twist. Um, I mean, I would hate to compare the two anyway, but it just reminded me that one of the notes I wrote for Parasite was like, you laugh and root for these horrible people, but at the same time, are they actually mm, horrible? Yeah, yeah. Like, no, not really. And I, even the rich family, the Park family, they aren't horrible people either. They just don't occupy the same spaces. Mm, um, yeah. Like, I was always struck by the constant um, referral to the smell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The like the the poorer family, and they're yeah. like they have the same smell, a smell that happens because of where they live. And but there's this the Park family, um, and the mate, uh, the patriarch of that family is particularly like always comments on it. Um, and it becomes such a like a moment of tension or a piece piece of tension that is so subtle, but you could almost imagine you could smell that as well yes or whatever yeah, yeah. kind mm. of sense they're emulating you could almost imagine that you watching the film could also understand mm. what they were smelling and it's not that he meant it in any negative way it was just something that was pointed out because they occupied different spaces just getting back to um to this class thing i thought mm. the key there was a key line where one of the characters says Something along the lines of, you know, they're sort of talking about how lovely this family are. And she says, um, 
well, the, you know, uh, they're so nice. Uh, and then she says, but, you know, they're rich. They can Rich people can afford to iron out all the wrinkles or so, something along those lines. Mm. And I think that's such a... Uh, it's almost the key to the film in a way, I think, um, or reading it in this class allegory. Like, they're, yes, they're, they're nice, but they also, you know, they casually dismiss these characters before mm. this new family um, incident weevils their way in. Mm. And as the film goes on, you know, you sort of see it, but a bit more is revealed. I just found that a really um, insightful moment in a film that's sort of full of these little insightful moments. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the smell motif which recurs as well is something that a lot of other directors would never have even occurred to them if they're writing a, st- a story about this sort of thing. But it is just so such a great encapsulation of this of these people in this particular place. Cool. Well, I I just think it yeah it really does resonate the film and it does. I mean, I hate to say it sounds cliche to say it takes you on a journey, but he really does. <laughs> like you don't know where the film's going to take you, yeah. which I yes. really loved about. Um, about it and I love that it's not doing that in a gimmicky way it's doing that in a very sort of particularly you, you tell that you can tell that you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing yeah yeah he had such a great handle on it yeah he had definitely. such a great handle on everything especially in like the final movement I didn't know where it was gonna go I didn't it was unpredictable it kept me on my toes and then you have these final scenes, final moments playing out. I don't know if I can. Talk no, to probably not. But yeah, I felt like I was in safe hands. Yeah. With this film. Yeah. Yeah. And I think listeners will be hearing more about films that we think are kept in safe hands toward the end of this podcast when we go through our top three films of the year. And yes, so, indeed. <laughs> yes, it may well make a reappearance. I I just really recommend it. Like, go watch it yes. in the cinema. Yeah, it is yeah, a very good really film to see. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Cinema lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really and also, I just yeah. Also, I thought that the production design, cinematography, and score all really stood out for me oh, as well. Yeah. Actually, really, really great. I don't know the editing. Oh, right. I found really quite good, really quite masterful. Actually, there was a particular sequence where the poor family are rehearsing like a script of what they're going to say to the richer family in order to enact one of the, the next phase or the next stage of their kind of deceit. And just the cut between the father relaying this information to the rich wife and then them back in their sub basement apartment rehearsing it with each other i felt that timing of that editing was so swift was so great and was like hilarious as well um this great moment of and a kind of a little bit of absurdity amongst the like the mm. still like brevity of the film like yeah i mm. have to had to point that out <laughs> yeah, yeah big yeah. love and um as Joanna Dimitia, friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> tweeted yesterday, best use of a peach since Call Me By Your Name. Uh, her thoughts resonate. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's um, Parasite. It's out now in sort of National Art House release. Yes. Go see it. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages, from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Okay. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) 
American director David Robert Mitchell follows up his acclaimed 2014 horror film It Follows with Under the Silver Lake, named for the LA hipster enclave that serves as a key setting. Andrew Garfield plays Sam, an aimless young man who spends a lot of time obsessing over pop culture and hanging out in his classic California apartment, playing at rear window and using binoculars to spy on his attractive female neighbours. Eventually he comes up with an excuse to meet one of them, Sarah, played by Riley Keogh. But then she mysteriously disappears. Sam begins to see signs of some greater conspiracy in the pop culture he's consuming, and the rest of the film tracks his attempts to solve this increasingly bizarre mystery. While all of that's going on, he intermittently meets his similarly idle friend, played by an unrecognisable Topher Grace, and politely fields calls from his mother. We get hints that he might have had some sort of breakdown, possibly following a relationship breakup, although nothing is explicitly stated. From Hitchcock to The Legend of Zelda, David Robert Green chucks in pop culture references aplenty. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the sheer number and scale of them is almost overwhelming. And by casting Patrick Fischler in a key supporting role, well known as the Winkies guy from David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, he's also keenly aware of the tradition within which he's working. Absurd, unwieldy and vaguely apocalyptic visions of Los Angeles very much belong to their own genre now, from Richard Kelly's Southland Tales to Greg Araki's Now Apocalypse. But when it comes down to it, Claire, do you find that there's much of interest deep beneath the Silver Lake? I think there is much interest in Under the Silver Lake, but I think there could have been more interest in Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, how so? Um, like you said, there is this new genre of Lynchian LA, Mulholland um, Drivey type films these days. And a lot of these films actually just leave me wanting more, wanting it to kind of take the further step, kind of keep going, have another layer to it. Mm. So you have a couple of twists and not everything is left and like is answered so which is fine to leave things unanswered but at the same time in regards to under silver lake it just seemed unnecessary to introduce these plots in the first place sure um so it just didn't really feel like a largely cohesive film to me yeah i think he could have taken it a step further i think it maybe was a little bit safe which is mm. everyone's saying i mean yeah interesting i Mm. think i would agree with you in the sense that there's dark things happening in la and you know show business is bad we sort of know these things what net where do you go from there what can you say i think you know what i think he's gesturing at interesting things but i agree i don't think it quite manages it i think the times are ripe for a kind of film treatment of young male disengagement, Mm. paranoia, you know, it's cultural paranoia, which I find Mm. very interesting, in which Topher Grace's character has a very interesting, you know, monologue where he talks about, you know, because of social media, because of being online, blah, 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 we're all just a little bit paranoid 24-7. And I thought, give me a movie all about that. I would watch it. That would be, that's such an interesting, there's these little interesting moments. And then you think, well, why, that's all very interesting, but then why would you make a pastiche Mm mystery Hollywood film riffing on 40s movies like how does this all cohere is it supposed to not be cohering if so why I don't know I loved the idea of him being love um Andrew Garfield's character being like 
obsessed with everything as a sign and there's hidden meanings mm. behind everything and kind of this underground network only for the like elite in the know people to know but I feel like the payoff didn't really encapsulate how big that idea was yeah. and I feel like it could have been this amazing extreme reveal because yeah I find that very interesting it's totally possible that it is I mean there is that great scene with the songwriter and I won't say much mm. more about mm. that which was wild and great but it also seemed a little bit pointless in the grand scheme yes. of things when you find Very out what the actual twist is. Is yeah. like, well, how is that related? Yeah, is what I, yeah is kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. It kind of it seemed a bit disconnected. Like he does things just for the sake of doing it and including it. Like the balloon girl, um, which was Grace Van Patten, which is an image of her walking down the street with like Andrew Garfield of her balloon in her hand and her space buns and in her um, swimsuit. It comes up a lot when people talk about under the silver mm, lake. Yeah, like, it is. We can actually have. A but to me, I'm just kind of like, it's just an aesthetic mm. that he wanted to include visually in his film. I think there's a lot of things that were included in the film that were just for the sake of aesthetic and kind of like this is a great image. I want to use that. I didn't really come off for me. I feel like th- what separates this film from something like Mulholland Drive is that I don't know if he actually cared about his characters too much mm. or either he just put the characters in there just for the sake of it mm. or to deliver a monologue or a line or a new piece of intrigue mm. but there wasn't much else there to me mm. Interesting. that kind of made them necessary yeah sure and I want to come back to talking about the images because there are some quite stunning images yeah, in this film definitely yeah. mm. Andy I came to hear your thoughts yeah so I've saw it twice now so I saw it last year and I've had to I haven't been able to talk about it with anybody since May 2018 and I've been like <laughs> for the love of God where is the world it's so strange seeing a movie like this and going I need to talk about it but there's nobody online talking about it anyway so finally I do I know I, I really like the myth of the American sleepover and I really liked it follows and I mm. have more faith I think than other people in David Robert Mitchell when it comes to talking about the male gaze basically it was a, it was a big problem when this movie first was being discussed it was like oh my god there's none of the female characters are developed everybody is either a sex worker or they're just a shell of a character and he's got really no interest more than you were saying but just that's the very imagery. deliberate isn't it it is that this is the thing yeah i think a lot of it is deliberate and it's the, the argument of like is it content or is it commentary i think is a big problem because the guy is a dick you know he's obviously hapless when he whenever he runs he looks like an idiot he's <laughs> totally doesn't regard anybody he sees everybody as very shallow they're either going to provide him with information or he's going to have sex with them or he's going to like cast them off. Like the way he treats his girlfriend is absolutely appalling. But at the same time, I feel like there's there's one the one scene with Topher Grace and him just after the Topher Grace conversation that you just mentioned, the mm. what the problem with society today is, you know, blah, 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 blah. They, they take a, there's a scene involving a drone and a girl that cries. And I think mm. that is the scene that tells you that he's much smarter than I think a lot of people are giving him credit for because – that scene in the hands of somebody who was just keen on showing you female form, you know, it just turns it on its head. So I thought that was really good and that was really interesting because if that had gone another way, then, yeah, I think this film would have been a, yeah. a shallow mess. And it is, it's all over the shop. I mean, but there are so many moments that I think are so strong, like the idea of having been given a biscuit as a ticket to a club oh, yeah, is like genius. Yeah. That's amazing. Like why have I not seen that before? That probably happens all over the place. That was an edible, wasn't it? He, it he was, it was an edible, yeah. Lace, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. That was cool. The way that he could just walk into parties. Like yeah. these really exclusive parties, just very symbolically dressed. Totally. What was his job? Well, he didn't. Is really... what I want to know. Yeah. Because there was because he talked about he, what? he explained how he didn't parties and he meet like what Jimmy Simpson. I don't know if he actually had a character name. He just walks into this party and he knows someone there and they're asking about their jobs and I'm just kind of like what 
is it that he does that yeah. allows him to just walk into these parties and automatically know who someone is and things like that. That was interesting to me. That actually, was insane. Which I thought would play a bigger part. Yeah, because, I, and this is, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, what is interesting is you do, yeah, you, you have this sort of recurring characters and like this girl who's staring at him from a billboard and mm. he keeps on staring at the billboard. And then they have this weird conversation and I I read that as, oh, this is his ex-girlfriend. Yeah, that's the impression I got. So then, and so you get this sense that maybe he's gone off the deep end and I I don't know, but the film doesn't really... Tell you this? No, at all. no, it leaves it open. It's quite like it leaves a lot of things open. Mm. Um, and so, but the in, the interesting thing is, like, well, all these ridiculous coincidences and these, these these kind of crazy pop culture theories that he has all end up, you know, <laughs> coming together in this strange sort of way that ultimately doesn't mean anything. Not, I don't know. Like, I'll leave that open to the, to the listener to decide. But I think I, I found find that the journey very un. Unsatisfying. Yeah. Unsatisfying. Yes. Yeah. How they all came Same. together, or didn't? Yeah. Yeah. Or didn't? But like, I understand yeah. why, but. Just personally didn't work. I mm. think I agree with you, Claire. It mm. could have been weirder. Like the the take, underlying take thesis. That extra level. Exactly. Like yes. formally it's quite weird and all of that stuff, but mm. like let's get beyond like women are commodities on screen. Let's get tell me something new. Do, mm. do something crazy with that. Um, I'm not sure he like go in the paranoia direction, but go all out. You know, I'm I'm just not quite sure he follows any of those threads through beyond a maybe a shallower way than yeah he could have i Mm. I thought anyway right okay can i make a somewhat clear comment sure that's what you're here for for, right (laughs) um i kind of liked um seeing sydney sweeney there as one of she was one of the shooting star girls Mm. the long blonde hair because she was in everything sucks which was that 90s teen film like uh tv series from netflix last year Um, and I kind of like seen her pop up again because ever since everything sucks came out, I'm like, she was, she was, (laughs) she was, had a great performance in there. I was wondering what she did that we'll do next. And then she turns up in this film and I'm like, great, amazing. But she was actually kind of a very similar character to her character Mm. in everything sucks. So if you want to deep dive in like other Andrew Garfield in this film. <laughs> There's a link between those two, honestly. Um, right, okay. But yeah, I just felt like that was an interesting shout out That's to do because, yeah, she's like an aspiring actress and everything sucks. She's an yeah. aspiring actress in Under the Silver Lake and they very similar characters and, yeah. Yeah, that is good, actually. And what I really liked, actually, in the same week that we're talking about, or same month that we're talking about Parasite, is how differently they use comedy. Like, both of these mm. films, like, comedy will just kind of turn up in this kind of naturalistic, unplanned way where it almost takes you by surprise. Like, here we have a pirate, a guy dressed as a pirate who randomly turns up. Oh, yes. And, and he's just like... Pirate man. And he has, it seems to have almost no a theme knows. music that just kind of accompanies him with this completely over-the-top, ludicrous sort of <laughs> da-da-da music. Um, and, and in Parasite, you know, the comedy kind of comes as a twist at the end of a series, mm. of a scene which seems otherwise fairly serious or just totally blindside you um and I, what i quite liked was the way that like i did feel that there was a comic element like you could read this whole film as a sort of a long black comedy i thought the way that mitchell kind of had that tone is it not though? well part i mean there are things of people literally dancing on hitchcock's grave yes <laughs> as well so there's, oh. there's all sorts of stuff where he's clearly like you know he's he yeah. knows what he's doing and it is he can all be read as this yeah. as a stoner comedy of a big lebowski style thing i think what, that's the way i read it interesting Ooh. yeah but maybe I, that's not a popular opinion. I'm not sure. 
I know. I really, I really liked it. I liked it more the second time because there was so much going on. There were so many scenes with like so ru- runes and symbols in the background. That, like, if I saw it again, would I notice something different about it? Because there's a lot going on. Mm. There's so like, much. would I appreciate it more the second time? Would I still see it as kind of? Yeah, because I, I really wanted to see it again because I was after seeing it at Cannes last year. I was like, there's no way you can release this film that's this long and this baggy. Like, it's 40 minutes too long, no matter how much you like this film. Like, it is so long. much. It's two hours, 40 there's minutes. No need, there's no need for it to be that long. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 long but when I saw it again, it was exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like one minute cut or one scene. Do you reckon? Do you reckon he might have like embedded secret messages through his references, and we can all be like Andrew Garfield and watch the film and work out what he's actually doing? Play it backwards. Play it, yeah, exactly. Play it backwards. If, unsurprisingly, track if you the TV if you, uh, <laughs> film clips. Unsurprisingly, if you go to Reddit, there is so. Oh, I'm sure there Reddit are is so all many this. theories. <laughs> the color of his shirt in certain scenes is, tells you more information. So people have dig, there's a scene where he's vomiting into a toilet in an underground club, and there's some runes written on the wall next to the toilet, which you can only love so see for like a few seconds. Yes. Yeah, it's full of that stuff. But yes, whether it's too obsessed with that stuff rather than telling a good coherent story. Is well, a fair criticism, I think. Yeah, I think that's a and fair And if you're critiquing people who act like that, why are you making us the viewers? I mean, I get I mean, I get it. I, um, I, yeah, I just wanted, I, yeah, I think I wanted more. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like, I think <laughs> I tweeted, I Twitter personality over here, um, like <laughs> a film that plays itself, which it kind of Yeah, does, that's good. That's fair. Yeah. Um, what was with the Spider-Man references? I just want to throw that out there. I think that was <laughs> too Garfield. ridiculous. Really? I like I know oh, yeah, Andrew I know. Garfield was I Spider-Man. <laughs> and his hand Obviously, is literally Obviously, that's stuck how he came it. onto my radar. Actually, no, it was... Um, <laughs> No, and the hand literally <laughs> sticking to the Spider-Man comic. Um, <laughs> it was great. Yes, everyone else was laughing and I was like groaning. I'm just like, why <laughs> are you doing that? That's like too, it's too much. It's, it's And this film is all I'm that, like, I want it? to be weirder, but that was like not what <laughs> I meant. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I did like uh, Richard Lawson's review on Vanity Fair, which opened with the line, um, at last a film for young white men. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, oh, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, I, he's just like near the end and he's um, searching for Riley Kier. It's like, I've been looking for you for everywhere. She's like, but you hardly know me. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes. yes, that's it. Exactly. Why does this keep happening on film? I don't know. Like, no shit, you hardly know her. Why are you doing this? Exactly. That's my pet peeve. Um, Riley Keogh, can I just, yeah, shout out to her. She's, I love, every Same. time she's yeah. in a film, I'm like, yeah. oh my God, you're amazing. So she she does good acting here. She's American great. Um, American Honey, yes. And Bloody yes. The Girlfriend Experience, which is one of oh, my favourite yeah. shows of all time. Right. Cool. Well, I could I recommend this? I don't know. I, well, you haven't got long to, to see it. Yeah, you've got to get into Nova. Yeah, I did check with Nova. It's playing at least until July 3rd. Uh, <laughs> but after that, you may have to seek it elsewhere. See it if you dare. I but why know. listen to our opinions when you can listen to David Robert Mitchell himself? <laughs> I think my sleep patterns are oh, pretty yeah. messed up. I haven't, I really haven't. I, I'm terrible at adjusting. I just, uh, oh, totally I sort of just move through my, my days in a, <laughs> a bit of a, my dream state. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which is kind of like what it's I uh, like watching a film. Sure. <laughs> no, because I was so excited before because I saw the trailer. I was like, oh yes. man, Silver Lake, oh, I know that, cool. that area pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really excited to see what you were going to do with it because yeah. up until that point, I kind of felt like you'd shown me rural Michigan or suburban Michigan. Yes, yes. And that the was... Fir- the first two, it was about, you know, it's where I grew up and really I you know I often will write about this thing as use use location as a point of inspiration things that I'm around 
Exactly, yes. and that's what I was really fascinated by with this film, because a lot of people are going into it saying it's an L.A. noir. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're happy like using that as a term? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's, again, it's my version of an L.A. noir and whatever that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I think it's cool. Um, yeah. I love the I love the genre. Yeah, I mean, I, I love so many um, uh, of um, uh, those types of mysteries. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big yeah. fan of them. Because you started writing this, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2012, was it? Well, I didn't start, I wrote it in 2012. Yeah. The I mean, whole was, thing? Yeah. Right, oh. okay. So, so yeah, I mean, it? I wrote it, I, you know, I had the idea, um, and then just jumped on the computer and, and you know, yeah, right. put it together. Kind of, it sort of came out, it was a bit of a fever dream state, you know, for myself. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a strange and very dark kind of fucked up experience writing this. And, um, you know, I was... I'm showing pages to my wife, uh, yeah. you know, each night. We were laughing about it and just how, how you know, the, this this sort of strange and, you know, interesting, dark world. Um, I was writing about um, using the, you know, the my the, my neighborhoods and the world around me as, as points of inspiration. It's certainly not uh, about any, anything in, in truth. It, it, um, it's a... It's a it's a distortion of of, yeah. of a place. It's a distortion of a reality. It's like an, it's a nightmare version of of, of things that were around. Because that's you didn't move there until later, right? Yeah, yeah I moved there after film school. Yeah, oh, I've been okay, there for right. a good number of years. Yeah, right, okay. it's like my, that's home for me now. Yeah, I mean Michigan is home and, and LA is home. Right. Okay. Cool. Because what I kind of understood was this was like an interesting version of LA that was like a, a mixture of the fantasy and the nightmare. Mm-hmm. It was kind of filtered through movies. Yes. You know. Do, yes. So do you see LA as a place that likes to see itself through movies? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's a, it's an it's an it's an industry town. It's um it's the, you know the the, you know you live there, you have your you have your personal connection to location. Yeah. Those locations mean something spe- like in terms of. The, the you know the actual industry itself there they and there may be meaning in terms of like you know is something was was there was there a business there was something you know specific to the industry related to that place and then there's also the way those locations exist within films yeah and the way they change over over the decades in, mm. in movies the way they're you know, they're they age or they're or they're destroyed and something else is placed there or the way they're dressed differently or the and the and the purposes of those locations um shift yeah um across through through film and television and we all kind of we're all we all know them even probably throughout the world on some levels we have some sense of them um and so yeah this was about um contributing to that vast library of um, uh, LA location, you know, uh, cinema history. Yeah, because trying it, to just sort of add a little bit to it. Because it would—it seems wrong to do a film that's partly about LA that isn't sprawling. Because that city is mm-hmm. like so uncontrolled. It's like, sure. It wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. It kind of came out that way. And that's what I really love about this is that there's so many ways to read it. I already need to go back and watch it again with a pause button because mm-hmm. I know that there was all this stuff that I missed. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's tricky. It's—it it was designed, um, and even at the script stage, it was always designed to be something to really appreciate. A person probably needs to see it at least more than at least more than once and there are things within it that I don't think can be deciphered without multiple views I know that those symbols on the wall next to the toilet when Sam is spewing in the crypt uh-huh. like I've got to get the hobo code and work out what the hell's going on there because that just, you can't get them the first time around <laughs> correct yeah there's all sorts of little things like that um I also really wanted to talk to you about the music music mm-hmm. choices because it's such a huge soundtrack I mean that's a double album easy if you're going to yeah it, it, it is they're, they're, I mean they're working on that yes oh great okay yeah. 
um, the, the score and with some, with some of the source music in there. Yeah. Right, and was the, how, how much was that was there at the beginning? And what you mean the like source the music? Yeah, the songs. Like, you know, well, I wrote. I wrote. A, I wrote a lot of that was in the script. A lot of the songwriter uh, songs in the songwriter scene were in the script. Not all. But we we switched out a few, and then, when we, as we were planning the sequence and added other things, and then um, there were like the REM was in the script along with many other things, and then there were some that were that we found through pre-production and then in, into post-production as well. Right. Yeah, so okay. it's a combination of all that. Oh, was that difficult to get all the songs you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> it, was a lot, it was a lot of work for everybody, for our music supervisor, our you know, composer, the producers, the whole, t- every, the whole team worked really hard to make that happen. It was a right. huge challenge. Um, so because we, I like, you know, particularly that songwriter sequence, you know, I, I, that scene meant a lot to me and I... And, and I knew that it was going to be really tough to pull off, and so we, we put a we put a ton of energy into that, like in pre pre production, yeah. basically all the way through into right. filming it. If you were making this now in 2018, would you consider it for a potentially TV series to better explore? No, I always things? wanted it to be uh, just. A, I wanted it to be a film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have a uh, I have a TV show that that I'm um, that I'm uh, episodes that I'm that I'm writing, um, and I, I don't know what'll ha- you know uh, when I'll be making that. Um, but uh, you know, that's um, uh, that's a different thing that that, that um, I think uh, lends itself to to um, you know the nature of, of multiple yeah. episodes and, and uh, being able to you know live with those characters so, you know, right. o- over a longer period of time. Um, this was just no. This was uh, always intended to be you know one <laughs> mm. <laughs> one chock uh, full you know yeah. uh, uh, piece of a, of a feature. Yeah. So how long did the first the first version run? Because I imagine you must have had to cut a lot out of this. To... Uh, you know, it was long. I mean, uh, um, the the uh, you know it probably was a little bit longer. I, I don't know the the script was. I'm trying to remember. It was at least 140 some 140 or 100. It was 150 pages, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. Okay. It was probably a little longer at first, but I think the shot was around that. Will there be a director's cut? This is it. This is the director's yeah, right. cut. Okay. Yeah, we don't need anything longer. <laughs> <laughs> but it, we're we're kind of right at the edge of what I think um, a lot of people can handle in terms of, of uh, feature film length. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And it and it may, and it's probably a little, you know it might be hard for some. Um, I, you know, I, it's a little tough for me because I know we're in this age where it's a little strange because people will literally sit on the, you know at home and watch ten hours of a show in a single day, nonstop, maybe except to like. You know, get up and, and you know make something in the microwave, and um, and yet uh, you know people have a tendency to you know sort of push against the idea of sitting in a theater for more than an hour and a half. So I always find that a little puzzling. But I guess it's just a, you know a moment in time. Um, can you just talk a bit about um, nostalgia and the role of mm-hmm. that? Because this is different in, in 2012 than it is now in 2018, where you know you're having these nostalgia fueled things like Ready Player One, yeah, sort of stuff. And you've got a very specific sort of nostalgia in your other films as well as this one. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, um, in my other films, it was about uh, um, approaching things in a very general sense, and, uh, and so that you don't quite understand like when something is, or, and we're pulling from many different eras. This is about a very specific moment in time, and um, and the pop culture references are completely specific. Yeah. Um, it, it was necessary to do so to to connect this to the real world. So that if we're watching like the items that he's finding clues in, the thing like these are things you you may have in your own home. Yeah. You may you may have you may have had you know when you were a kid you might have had that Nintendo Power magazine mm. with the, with yeah. the fold out map. It's yeah. a, it's about you know sort of um, saying that the very things that were in your life that you cared about they may have had another meaning, and so yeah. it needed mm. to be. 
They need it to be real world things. You might have, you know, you, you may have seen that um, uh, Playboy magazine somewhere. You know, you may, you may these, these are these are these are real items yeah. in the world that uh, we're trying to build on their meaning within the film. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Um, and finally, can I get a turning teeth seven inch? Oh, um, you know, they. I think they are making. Um, they are actually going to press uh, oh, the, the cool. <laughs> turning. I think it will have like turning teeth and the. I don't know what else. It, maybe it's going to have like, the, their version of you know the the bride version of to serve with love. I think, but I right. I can't remember. But I know they're the and the with the cover and stuff. The one that's being handed yeah, yeah, out. But yeah, I think yeah. they're actually the the, uh, the Milan Records. I think they're going to make one. Um, and I know that they're releasing like you know um, download and. Um, and CD, and then also um, actual albums. So I think it'll yeah, be like double right. album with the with the full score and some of the source music. And some sort of code in the liner notes or something. What's that? Something like that. I don't know. I can't <laughs> speak to that, but you have to keep looking. <laughs> Thank you very much. Of course. <laughs> and that was David Robert Mitchell talking about his film Under the Silver Lake, which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. With Acme closed, screenings are now taking place around the city at other cinemas such as The Capital, where you can find the TV festival Series Mania running from July 4 and 5, and there you can hear from Melissa Rosenberg, the creator of Marvel's Jessica Jones and screenwriter for all five Twilight films and executive producer of the series Dexter. Catch the premiere of new Australian series The Hunting, the ABC comedy Frayed and award-winning British series The Virtues. You can find out more at acme.net.au. And while you're there, you can also find out about Melbourne Cinematheque, which is continuing even with Eloise being in Italy. Um, it's continuing to do what it does best, resurrecting movies that need appreciating, and their latest is one of the more underappreciated directors they've highlighted recently, which is Soviet director Larissa Shepitka, including her first film, 1962's Heat, and her other film, The Farewell. Then, throughout July, they're running a series of films by Catherine Bigelow, including The Hurt Locker, Blue Steel, Near Dark, and Strange Days. The Scandinavian Film Festival is happening at Palace Cinemas throughout Melbourne from July 11th to 31st. Highlights include the Icelandic drama about a father dealing with his grief, A White White Day, Swedish sci-fi film Aniara, and the opening night comedy from Denmark, Happy Ending. You can find out more at scandinavianfilmfestival.com. Meanwhile, over at the Astor, you can catch a double bill of Pokemon Detective Pikachu and Osmosis Jones on July 13. Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day are playing on July 19. The 1968 version of Planet of the Apes is playing on Wednesday, July 17, and its sequels Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Escape from the Planet of the Apes on the following Wednesday, the t- July 24. You can find out more at astortheatre.net.au. Finally, the Thornbury Picture House has a festival called Winter is Dark, a film and gin festival. On July 4, it pairs the dark comedies Fargo and Heathers. July 11 is Dark Music with Control and The Cure live at Hyde Park. July 18 has Dark Romance with Blue Velvet and The Handmaiden. And closing on July 25th is Dark Horror, where you can catch a double bill of The Fog and Suspiria. You can find out more at thornburypicturehouse.com.au. All whilst enjoying a nice gin. Yes. They didn't okay. go into they didn't specify the gin on their website, but these films are Surprise. enough to get me there. Interesting. Mm, I thought so. So we're going to close out uh, this month's episode by sharing our top three films of 2019 so far. And here is Joanna DiMattia with her top three. My top three films of the year so far make quite an intense trio. At number three is Bong Joon-ho's Palm Door winner, Parasite. 
a film that demonstrates director Bong's mastery of his craft and his control of tonal shifts. I laughed when I was uncomfortable, and I was uncomfortable when I laughed. I was completely caught up in the operatic grandness of its many moments of emotional release. I watched Parasite with surprise and admiration, leaning forward in my seat for much of its two-hour-plus runtime. I think this is a timely, vital, deeply empathetic film, and most importantly, a prime, near-perfect piece of visual entertainment. My second favourite film of the year so far is Karen Kusama's Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman. On the surface, it's a gritty crime thriller, but it's really so much more than that. It's a film about women's rage, it's about redemption and its limitations, it's about the tidal waves of trauma and of the damage that we do to ourselves as we try to make the world right. Kusama breaks all the rules about how women's bodies should look and behave on screen, something that she's been doing since her debut film Girl Fight back in 2000. And Kidman's vulnerable and bruising physical performance as a broken woman is exaggerated and heightened for effect, making this a confronting and quite unforgettable film experience. We were scum. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of recycling us to serve science. The odds are not in our favor. But when my work is accomplished, when perfection is achieved, then what? Fly away? I know I look like a witch. You're Foxy and you know it. My number one film of the year so far is also a confronting and unforgettable one. It's Claire Denis' High Life, starring Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. Eerily silent at times, this meditation on sex and death in space is a mysterious, melancholy and deeply unsettling film. It's equal parts repulsive and rapturous, and I've barely stopped thinking about it, and its final scene in particular, since I saw it. I hope that I'm still thinking about it at the year's end and beyond that. Is it a film full of hope or full of existential despair? I don't know, and I'm okay with that. And that was Joanna DiMattia with her top three. So, Claire, can I kick off with your number three? My number three? I mean, certainly. Uh, um, and, of course, you don't have to lock it in because you, well, there will be room to room room honorable, face. There's honourable mentions that you can throw in at the end if there are things okay. you don't get to talk about. Excellent. I mean, let's, let's start off big, in a sense. Mm-hmm. My number three is Booksmart, which right. is coming out soon, to the surprise of no one here, I am sure. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is a debut feature film directed by actress Olivia Wilde. Um, so Booksmart is a high school odyssey of the final night before graduation. Uh, the film centers on two high-achieving best friends, activist Amy, um, Caitlin Diva from Short Term 12, mm. among many things. The Short Term 12 is fantastic. Yes, it is. She is amazing in this film. Oh, yes. Oh, right, my continue. gosh. Someone give her my number, please. <laughs> um, and Ambitious Molly by Beanie Feldstein, most well known for Ladybird. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And who they both dedicated their high school years to studying and doing everything they can to get into the colleges of their dreams. However, on the last day of school, they find out that they all the 
irresponsible people and students at their school who partied also got into the same good colleges as they did. Realizing this may mean they have wasted their high school experience, they try to spend the last night going to a party for that seminal anecdote to carry with them for the rest of their (laughs) adult lives. Um, I also was a high achieving nerd in high school who feel like I didn't party, so this film right off the bat was extremely my jam, um, which is why I loved it so much. Um, but I, honestly, it is hilarious and fun and such a wild ride. What I love so much about it is Olivia Wilde clearly, as a director, loves these teenagers and understanding this generation at the moment. Um, she, The whole film comes out of a place of love and understanding, I feel... There is no animosity or there is animosity at the beginning, but all of that gets checked and corrected, which I love because in the past, you know, you had teens or especially teen girls going against each other. Even, you know, me girls, easy A, like from this entry. And then you go back as far as Heather's and, um, you know, even like, yeah. Um, The women. The women. Yeah. Like, you know, like, so I just love that in this film at the beginning, they... Uh, Amy and Molly have this superiority complex like we are smarter and better than you and then throughout the film they start to realize how wrong they were and just kind of check themselves um and it's had fantastic performance by the supporting cast as well I think she's accumulated a great team um mm. including Billy Law who is comedic genius is Gigi this like super rich um, student who's eccentric and a unicorn that kind of pops up everywhere throughout the <laughs> night to say something wild but also accurate and sets them on their path and she is phenomenal and I am so excited to see her doing more things mm-hmm. um, but I it's it's so fun it's just like a party and I love that you got this kind of you know you got this high school comedy film that's littered with F-bombs and sex jokes and everything, but it's two girls and two best friend girls at this front of it, which has hardly happened mm. um, throughout the teen canon, especially in like um, mainstream Hollywood films. And they are fiercely feminist. Everyone in the film is kind of aware and engaged, but in a very natural way that you haven't really seen on film yeah, the while. only thing that really reminded me of the time was Blockers. Yeah. Which I think is yeah, a but staggeringly also underrated. Blockers was also largely about the parents as much as about the kids. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, whereas in Booksmart, it's entirely about the teens. But yeah, like I just love this trend that's mm. happening lately, especially female filmmakers. Um, that I want to continue continue happening. Um, mm. Yeah. Big, yeah, you know, teen screen expert. Yeah, very narrowly nostalgic. Gives it an A. Yep, absolutely. Would recommend. Cool. And we can all check out this film in what, a couple of weeks? When's it coming out? July 11th, July I believe. July 11th. Mid-July. Mm. Cool. Anders? Well, my number three is totally quite different. It is, and I believe it may be popping up in other lists, it is If Beale Street Could Talk. I have a confession to make. I think I love Barry Jenkins. Um, Shocker. I know. know. Uh, He has this incredible ability to conjure up grand, strongly felt ideas and then channel them right down into such beautiful um, specifics, I think. And the central relationship of this romance drama becomes a tiny pinpoint, this sort of, this tiny keyhole through which 
vast realms of politics, um, system, systemic racism, and also sort of deeply felt romantic emotion are all sort of channeled. Um, and I think he just does it so exceptionally well. He's so adept at doing this. Um, and he's created something that's quite moving um, as a result. And I think the work of a legitimate artist. Um, I could isolate so many things and we've talked about it at length before, so I don't want to sort of repeat myself. But I would like to briefly mention um, this technique that he uses it, and he uses it in Moonlight 2 where uh, his camera sort of sweepingly revolves around groups in conversation and then he steals these sort of slow motion front-on shots um, of his lead actors looking at each other and connecting with each other. Mm. And it's such a beautifully choreographed movement and a slowing down of time and a, I guess, an emphasis of those sort of emotional moments. And I think he... He never once makes it seem gimmicky or too deliberate. Um, mm. It's always sort yeah. of just emotionally pitch perfect. So that's one, just one of many of the reasons why I love um, If Beale Street Could Talk, his adaptation of the James Baldwin book. I, yeah, I, if you haven't seen it, um, and we were talking about how it sort of has dropped off the radar, people yeah, don't seem to be It was the start of the year and a lot yeah, has happened January, since, what, January, mm, February. Yeah. Um, it's on DVD now. It is. I, in fact, I as uh-huh. I was writing this, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to JB Hi-Fi after we record. It's on special. Yes. Right Great. Now. Good to know. Just okay. FYI. Listeners, get out there. Thank us later. Mm-hmm. Um, you may well be hearing more no about this film later. <laughs> yes, you may. You may. <laughs> um, my number three is uh, Jacques, Jacques Audiard's Western Noir, The Sisters Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yes. Cool. Oh, great. I was rethinking this one recently, actually, so I'm glad. Oh, good. Yeah, Continue. I'm so glad. So this is like... <laughs> It's set in the mid-1800s in Oregon. Uh, Riz Ahmed plays a chemist who has made a valuable secret discovery that Rutger Hauer's The Commodore wants. So Rutger Hauer uh, sends two assassins, the Sisters Brothers, played by John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, after him. Um, I think this is a film, uh, and so there's a lot of uh, bloodshed and uh, drama and comedy ensues. Um, it looks amazing. It's shot in Spain, which is meant to be standing in for the Pacific Northwest, so it looks really incredible. I think the cinematography alone is a reason to see this but yeah. the screenplay is just is wild like it's just like we were talking about juggling tones before this is kind of takes it to another level so i think a lot of people would it didn't work for i think it's been overlooked i think people when, when i go and look at and see what other people have been saying about it people seem to be throwing pretty much every genre around like it's a comedy it's a drama it's a thriller it's a noir it's a, you know it's, it's kind of everything in one but mainly it's a western mm-hmm. um it didn't seem to play for very long here we got a bit of a play at the um, only on Francais Film Festival, but yeah, I just think it's been overlooked, and I really think people should look at take another look at it again. I think Definitely, it's really funny. Yeah. It's strange. It's very and it's entertaining. Got, yeah, and yes. then toward the end, it gets quite moving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I was also thinking about thinking about it again recently because I think it gets overlooked because people want it to be a western, but it's more than that. Uh, what I found so striking about it is just the relationship each of the men have with each other. I felt like that was yeah. really interestingly explored. There's a lot of homoerotic tension going on there uh, too. Yes. Mm. Uh, particularly so between Riz Ahmed and Jake Gyllenhaal, is it? Yeah, yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. The thing I said yeah. when I finished that film was Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed are in love and that's the word on the Sisters Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's such a great film. It's... Um, I, I think I might have said this at the time, but it uh, to me, it's what Tarantino thinks he makes. Like, it's just... Right, yes. Tarantino it's, wishes. Yeah, Tarantino wishes. It's 
entertaining. <laughs> it's smart. It's clever. It's like really stylish. And it's nuanced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, soft, yeah. Great, great choice, Andy. Yeah, thank you. you know, yes, uh, good taste, excellent taste, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great job. Um, what was your number two? Claire? Um, okay, I'm gonna go with Vox Lux. Oh, wow. oh by that Brady may be, Corbett. That may be appearing on the novel oh. list. Who knows? Oh. I love keeping everyone on their toes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know much about the film before I saw it. I just went in one day by myself. Um, just knowing that everyone was raving about it. I love Natalie Portman, um, so I was good to go. The film is divided into two parts across the last 20 years, um, you know, as it follows the meteoric rise of pop star Celeste, played by Natalie Portman. And its tagline is, like, portrait of a 21st century. So when I was watching it, I felt like I was reliving some trauma that I've never actually experienced and taking the plot line into consideration, what I kind of gather is that trauma is just growing up in the 21st century. So the film begins with a school shooting at Celeste's school. Horrific, and you heard terrifically depicted. Um, and from then on, the entire film is so tense. You see kind of the effects of that shooting on Celeste herself. You see her in LA at the time of 9-11 happening and her sister just relaying that information to her. And this very like throwaway scene, but at the same time, it kind of continues on being like this feeling of being tense and intensity of throughout the 21st century, a kind of, especially in America, you're always on your guard of not knowing what's going to happen next. So you're just seeing the effects of these events on Celeste, especially in part two as an adult and trying to wrestle maintaining her image and still being relevant and her relationship with her daughter um, as well as, you know, she still has, you know, ghosts from her injuries from the school shooting at the beginning of the film. Yeah, it really stuck through me. I mean, it wasn't an easy film to watch by any means, but it was kind of the most profound experience I'd have had this year in a cinema. Andre Shannon, who is a fellow writer at my website, Rough Cut, plug there, um, did an interview with Brady Corbett earlier this year and he describes it as operatic, but he's also said the film is a very carefully constructed piece of architecture, at which, like we'll say in Earth Parasite, that he felt like the film was well handled. I think Vox Lux divides a lot of people, but I honestly think Vox Lux was well handled as well. I think he had knew exactly where he was going with it all and just the way it was filmed as well like that opening title sequence was phenomenal to me so the film is shot in an irregular aspect ratio as it informs you at the beginning of the film they're saying like this is a different aspect ratio this is deliberate and then some people behind me in the cinema was just kind of like oh okay like they weren't really (laughs) sure what to make of it so it was uh, 1.66 to 1, which is known as European widescreen, apparently, as my Google said this morning. Uh, this might but be I why... Could not be... When I, watched, not, when I watched a Cinema Nova, it was going over the bottom yes. curtain uh, and they yeah. were coming in and out and trying to fix really? it. And <laughs> yeah. They gave up. So I also saw it at Nova. Maybe yeah. they, got, they got their shit Maybe together they got, by yeah. then. Mm. Well, there you go. Yes, I swore. Yeah. Great. I thoroughly agree. I'm all... Discuss it further. Right, great. Okay. Point. Um, so it's not your number two? No, my number two is 
1985. Um, <laughs> Again, I will keep this short because we've expounded at this length, I think, on the last podcast. Um, 61. So, I don't, yeah, I don't want to repeat myself too much here. But look, what I love about Yen Tan's 1985, one of the many things, is that he takes a very simple story, essentially a young man living with AIDS coming home to tell his conservative parents, and he executes this story so perfectly. And it's that way in which the subject matter and film technique intersect that I think really makes this film work in such simple ways it's almost elegant the way he takes very simple notions but constructs them um exceptionally well the low budget black and white photography i think really emphasizes here the claustrophobia of um the main guys i guess being closeted his his life circumstances which is quite sort of affecting um and on top of all of that you have really sensitive performances from these actors, um, Virginia Madsen, Michael Chiklis, um, they all shift against the grains of the archetypes that they're sort of portraying. So he's he's not wanting to... It's, it's quite exceptionally restrained, and some would probably argue too restrained, in how he refuses really to pass judgment, even on the characters who are judging themselves. Well, he is, but he does pass judgment. But you... I guess you get a sense of these characters and 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 why they they are the way they are. And I think he does that very well, and yeah, it's just it's very moving. I saw it um, for the second time a couple of weeks ago with a friend, and she turned to me and she was like, uh, "Anders, that was devastating." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah that's a very good word for it. Yeah, it is devastating, and it's got a fantastic final monologue." over mm. um, sort of these scenes of this guy's life in New York City um, and, like, the gay clubs of New York City and this fantastic final monologue that really is sort of like the emotional, emotionally resonant crux of the film. Yeah, it's just I, I can't stop talking about how how affecting it is. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's such a powerful film. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't, what I really like is the that restraint. I think it just it almost redoubles its power because it so refuses to spell out this is what you need to feel right now. It's just... So focused on character, um, but particularly the relationship between the brothers and the way that that develops over the yes, film. Yes, so I love poignant. that relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. And his best friend, who's the stand-up comic, who's trying to make a go of it. She's a really great character, I think, too, that he manages to give a lot of depth to with hardly any time, screen time, really. She, You get to know her quite well with minimal dialogue. Yeah, and yeah. just this, I mean... This I, I think that brother relationship is a key to the film. So he's this guy is sort of what in his late twenties, I'd say, um, and he's come back to the small town for for Christmas to do all of this. And uh, he's got a younger brother who would be what twelve, maybe thirteen. And the younger brother, it's it's sort of suggested that he's gay, he's gay, or he's at least sensitive. He's different. He's, he's very into Madonna. He's sensitive. He's very into Madonna. For a twelve-year-old exactly. living in Texas, exactly. It's very into Madonna. Very sensitive. He dropped out of sport to play to go into the theater club. You know all that kind of stuff. Um, and he's sort of having a hard time. And the and so the, this monologue really is the older brother telling him, you know, a version of it gets better. But what's really interesting is this this idea of like progress right which is not going to come in time to save this poor closeted guy but it may very well come in time for his young brother and that is quite a devastating thing yeah to present like this yeah this idea that slow progress you know incrementalism is all well and good but what about the lives of the people it leaves behind and that's all sort of in there Mm. and i I just think it's it's so 83 minutes 
Like yeah, if only every, everybody was I this know. good at telling stories. It's incredible. It's, it's oh, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah, big fan, big fan of 1985. Okay, cool. So my number two is also a film about uh, male relationships, but it's on the very big, the biggest flip side you can possibly imagine of that. And <laughs> number two is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, which people will get a chance to see August fifteen. Okay, I think. Uh, now there's so much crapola out there about this already, and it's very hard to peel away the bro opinion from actually what is behind it all. Because even trying to talk about this online, or in my case, trying to get an interview published with the key people who are in part of this film, is basically just showing there's so much toxicity around it. It almost doesn't matter, I think, how good or bad this film is going to be. So many people have made up their mind that Tarantino is too tainted by Weinstein, too tainted by the way that the female characters are already underwritten. I mean, if people know anything about this film yet, it's probably Margot Robbie gets a dozen lines playing Sharon Tate but she gets third billing and there was a big fuss at Cannes, as people may know about yes. his very, very defensive response to the New York Times reporter who asked him about what, why is her role so small. Um, and it's, look, it's a very fair question. I was actually <laughs> about to ask the very same question um, at that press conference. Andy, you could have been at the centre of a I media firestorm. <laughs> yeah, um, dodged a bullet in a way. <laughs> but anyway, here I am surviving to tell the story of actually how this is a really good film. <laughs> it's actually fantastic. I don't quite know if it justifies its two-and-a-half-hour running time. or I, I think it's going to get edited. Oh, sorry, it was 2.45, but I think he's taken wow. out 20 minutes or something of it, which is good because, um, I mean... But at the same time, even the, the scenes that I've heard that didn't make the cut um, sound uh, remarkable because uh, basically this is a film about a, a male friendship and it's how it spans over time and how that society is changing around them. And it's certainly something I think Tarantino knows a lot about, that he's, you know, he's got certain points of view that maybe don't jive quite as well in 2019 as they did when he did, made Reservoir Dogs. But uh, you know, and also I think that he's maybe had a life which hasn't meant that he needs to change much because no matter what he does, it's going to make you know nine figure box office. It's going to be huge. It's going to be you know, you know nine figures over right. over a hundred million dollars anyway. Every all of his films, you know, yeah. all around the world, he's such a bankable name. So the fact that he's chosen to like go back and look at this point of time in the late '60s in LA with the Manson story taking a surprisingly small back back seat, I think until at least the last third when it kind of comes back around again. Look, it is extraordinarily problematic. There are definitely big issues that are justified, I think, when it comes to talking about how women are portrayed in this film particularly. Certainly people can point at Kill Bill and Jackie Brown and say, look, he is capable of doing you know, well-rounded, really you know, mm. intricate women and see them as real people, not just you know, catalysts to a male story. And in, in this case, I think there, there is the male story is so well played by Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio that I think they both will probably be up for Oscars because it's just such a this, they've just given these amazingly complicated roles and their relationship is so beautifully observed and the world around it is almost like being in um, GTA, the Grand Theft Auto, LA because there's so much time you're in cars listening to commercials from that era, listening to music that wasn't the popular songs we know from that era. Like when I was trying to think back, it was like wall to wall music, but there was no obvious choices. I think there's like um. There's a cover of uh, um, Mummers and Papas' song "California Dreaming." I think that's one of the. There's a f- lot of like garage rock that's getting played on turntables. Um, it's just this, the attention to detail is one of the things that just blows me away. It's the same with Parasite, actually, because they were like the two favourite films I think I saw at Cannes. Both of them are just so richly well detailed. There's a f- such fastidiousness going on about that. Yeah. And I'd you know I'd say that Parasite has a more interesting story, but this one was just so captivating. It was just so entertaining. So, so what happens here? Leo DiCaprio so, is his actor. Sorry, yes, thank you. Yes. And um, Brad Pitt's his his stunt, stunt guy, double? but also okay. he's not. Um, he's like best friend slash driver slash right. confidant. So they have this complex. It's a very interesting relationship. relationship. Okay. Yeah. If you watch the trailer. 
there's a part where they're being interviewed. So Leo plays this fading TV star who was in a show called Bounty Law, which is like similar to Gunsmoke or something like that. And all around him, LA is changing very quickly. There's hippies have arrived. So he's like feeling a man at a time. Easy Rider's happening. Roman Polanski's moved in next door to him mm. with Sharon. And uh. so this, it's very much, he's like seeing all this stuff happening. He's like, oh man, if I could just get to meet Roman, I might get a role in a movie and then I might still be able to keep being somebody. Um, but then there's a midsection of the film where, which just takes place in Italy. <laughs> oh. where he goes off to Why? be in spaghetti westerns because that's an option oh. that his agent played by Al Pacino thinks is a very good move <laughs> so again you know Tarantino gets to go hey um, let's look at spaghetti westerns which is a genre he clearly loves Bruce Lee turns up in a very <laughs> role in a role that is going to get taken to pieces on social media and by a lot of writers justifiably so it's a tokenistic gesture that <laughs> feels a bit tone deaf and there is a lot of just beautifully observed friend, ma- like male friendship going on and it's kind of it's very poignant. I was really surprised actually how well and how well it was written. There's a few scene stealing shots from a girl who I think is like eight or nine, who's who acts alongside Leo in this role that he's got in in a small movie. But uh, there's it's, it's an, there's enough here to make this worth definitely worth seeing. I think it's a really entertaining, very complex film that people are going to have a lot to say about. Cool. Okay. It's a, yeah, it's a real yeah. And the fact that it's parts of it are so tone deaf makes it extra 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true they cut out James Marsden? This is the information I need to know. Uh, yeah, I think so. God damn it. There's a, there's a scene where they recreated oh. the end of The Great Escape with Leo on a motorbike that apparently didn't make the cut either. So there's probably like tens of millions of dollars. That was all I was for. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, wasn't he like he was madly <laughs> rushing to edit like yeah. I – the- Bloody oh, yeah, Thierry. Well, yeah, didn't we think it wasn't going to make the can No, cut? and then Thierry, whatever the hell his name is. The, Frameau, yeah. The Thierry Frameau, the president of the can. He um, came out and was like, oh, Quentin, uh, Quentin's film debuts in two weeks here at Cannes. He's still in the editing suite. He's a true son of Cannes. I know, yeah. So like, oh, my God. It was, it was a very transactional situation. I mean, because a Cannes this year without that film would have been, yeah, what been. have you got? You've got Jim Jarmusch's zombie movie that nobody likes. Yeah. It's like the only thing to make headlines back in America. <laughs> so, yes, it was, I think he was extremely grateful for that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm actually, I've got to say, I am uh, quite interested to see yeah. this film. Yeah, I feel, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm still a bit nervous about saying I am like not, but <laughs> mm. we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, although there's one th- factoid that I can share exclusively on Cultural Capital that you Ooh. won't hear anywhere else is the one question I got to Margot Robbie in the Q&A, that, um, which is when I, she went over to Quentin Tarantino's house to read the script, he opened his fridge and had a fridge full of VB, which apparently Ooh. is his favourite beer. Oh, well, they go. He has the weird Australian Favourite beer thing. or pandering? Oh, good call. Aye. Yeah, it could be either way. Yeah. <laughs> Although, what is Margot Robbie's favourite beer? That's mm. Yes, Claire, your number one favourite film one. of 2019 so far. Good old Barry Jenkins. It is also yeah. a Field Street <laughs> Could yes. Talk. Well, what to say that you haven't already. Um, I recently reviewed this for work because the DVD came in um, and I wrote that it is such a tactile film. I felt like the way that Barry Jenkins really, he, like you mentioned how he's like his sweeping camera movements where he'd swirl around a group of people or he'd really hone in on a conversation. For me, I would describe Beale Street as the look of love. You know, Jenkins is unafraid to really look and then keep the gaze on them wherever there's so many like striking like direct to camera close-ups by like Kiki Lane or Stephen James well where they're staring at each other but through the camera they're really staring at you and just 
and it stays there and it lingers and it really just situates itself within the love that these two have for each other and then the support and love the family have for each other which because he takes his time and it's kind of like a languidity to it um and you feel like you can just reach out and touch their love or touch these characters or the story like you're very much situated within it itself there was I was transported for the entire time and I mean I knew I would love it because I loved Moonlight I was really excited for this film to come out the trailer was gorgeous um but I just am so glad that I actually loved it as much as I did um but yeah because it came in February or January or something like you know haven't thought about it in a while but also at the same time I've never stopped thinking about it this is mainly also because of this score by Nicholas Brattel which is probably one of the most beautiful pieces of film music I've heard um I love just listening to it I listened to it on the tram home after seeing the film and it was just the most amazing profound like soundtrack to your life like listen to it while you're in transit at night through the city or something like you won't regret it you ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You know I love you. No matter what happens. I'm yours and your mind and that's it. You and me all the time. Honey. There's something I gotta tell you. Yeah, goodness gracious, I will follow Barry Jenkins anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say that. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah, to the Underground Railroad. Yes. Is, what yes. he's doing next? Can't oh, wait. Is that mm. still happening? The last I checked, and I checked very recently. Yes. Okay. Great. Watch your step, miss. I clear the table. Come Um, Claire, are we the same person? Um, <laughs> I feel I feel a deep connection. Yes. Uh, my number one is Vox Lux. Hell yes. Um, and look, you really hit the nail on what you were talking about there. This mm. is a film about trauma, um, and the trauma, I guess, of 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 America in the 21st century. All of these fascinating links between 9-11 school shootings, media spectacle, popular entertainment. It's wildly ambitious, which I love, and Childhood of a Leader was wildly ambitious too. And again, he, as he did in Childhood of a Leader, he instills it with this weird sense of inescapability or fate or inevitability to what happens, and this is like breakdown that sort of Natalie Portman's character sort of uh, goes through, it all feels almost like it's preordained, like back before even these school shootings, which is quite, um, I don't know, 
almost nihilistic. I don't know. It's it's very it's very bleak. It makes it's it's not it's not a feel good film at it's all. It's a bleak film. It is a bleak film. Even like the color wash of it all. Yeah, definitely. It's and I I think um, that key point about the architecture of the film. Mm. I think that's I think that's accurate because I think I've read people criticize it particularly for its final sequence, which well, okay, but yeah, which I I I won't spoil, but. Can we spoil? Mm. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Look, some people have criticised it for a final sequence for for it being sort of lifeless and um, oh. flat, even. Right. And I think it is, but I think that's exactly. I think that's the point. And I yeah, can't really I don't know how you could without. have anything that wasn't after that film. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter how many blinding lights or f- fireworks you throw at, that, at, at you know in that final. No, section. exactly. I think yeah, like it probably went a little bit too long for me. It, or yeah, something, it does but, go and long. It was a bit flat, but at the same time, it was such a good decision to have that moment yeah. there because yeah. you, for the most of the film, it's kind of all talk in a sense. Yeah. Like you know, she's this amazing pop star, so we're having that third, that yeah. the f- finale. I think it's referred to as. Um, yeah, I feel like it was still necessary and kind of ties it all together, seeing how all of these things that we've witnessed throughout the film have culminated into what her um, public persona exactly is. is. And also just like how kind of absurd it is in this sort of very d- depressing way. And like this is quite... I mean, this, I'm... Look, I've read critiques of the film that say that it's anti-pop and that, it, you know, it's unjustifiably... Um, lambasting pop, and I'm, you know, not I'm not anti-pop by any means. Um, uh, <laughs> Carly Rae Jepsen, like, um, but I, I just think it's an interesting idea. This idea of like almost frenzied spectacle as a way to get over or process or not process, not even think about whatever they're trying to do. It's just and the almost frenzied way in which it presents itself in her star persona in the film in the film i just find that really interesting and again very de- a deliberate move i thought mm, yeah um and whether you think it may be too over the top or too too uh you know pessimistic i still think it's it's definitely worth considering yeah yeah it's an mm. amazing achievement. like he's yeah. very provocative as a filmmaker i think and it's the same with childhood of Lita. it's very yeah. i like how he's in intellectually provocative i feel like yes. yeah but that's almost a dangerous thing to say now because gaspar no is provocative but i feel like he hasn't got much to say yeah, no, last one is also provocative no, but almost I think brady gorbett has a brady lot more Cor- to say exactly that's what i'm saying yes. like yeah, this yeah, is yeah, properly yeah. provocative yeah yeah, yeah definitely, <laughs> definitely this is more exactly than just like right. look it's how great this looks nicholas winding ref and you know it's yeah yeah anyway yeah love fox socks watch it Good. Yes. My, Watch yeah. my number one is also if Bill Street could talk. So <laughs> there isn't not much to add to what you've already, to you've already said. But my God, it was beautiful Hive to sit mind. down and see the open Love thirty it. seconds of this and just go, Oh God, this person knows what they're doing. Yeah. Sw- yeah. You can have all the swooning camera work you like. I'm going to be there for it. I think when you originally talked about this film, one of your previous episodes, you talked about how there's that sweeping camera movement of um, Stephen James's funny smoking while yes. um yes. while doing his art and you're like that's the most amount of smoke i've ever seen so it was like, like five people like vaping that's one not the other. an accurate <laughs> amount of smoke but it pays off so oh, well yeah, it like was. yeah there's so much smoke in this film isn't there yeah, <laughs> yeah. smoke and mirrors yeah. exactly good call um so we may as well move on to our um honorable mentions does anyone else have any films they would like to mention before we wind up this episode that's running fairly long I had a few I wanted to mention that didn't really know where it fit within a top three. I think it's too early to really to tell it a top three. Um, but 
her smell. Oh yeah. I really enjoyed. But part of me, and I hate that I do this, can't think about it without comparing it to Vox Lux. Mm-hmm. Just because they're both about female artists, female singers, like breaking down. But in both very different ways. Um, her smell was fantastic. Um, I think Elizabeth Moss did a phenomenal job um, as this like riot girl punk um, singer. Yeah, I think it was at SIF, it was at Sydney Film Festival. Right, yeah, I was going to ask um, you, sorry. Hopefully mm. it's coming out again here soon, well, soon will tell. But that also definitely well worth looking into. As well as um, I Am Easy to Find, the short film from Mike Mills accompanying The National mm-hmm. um, oh, cool. new album um, with Alicia Vikander in it. Mike Mills is one of my favourite directors. Mm ever um you know beginners and 20th century women have been formative in my cinephilia life yeah um everything but yeah so i love the national too and it's this amazing kind of experimental ish short film where alicia vikander maintains the same age the entire film but it details one woman's life from birth till death and so she physically embodies that of being a young girl and then growing up into an older woman and everyone else around her ages, but she doesn't. And it's just songs from the album are played over top and there's these um, poignant and like there's little captions along the bottom that kind of describe what's going on, but in like a really like emotive way that it's kind of existential, but phenomenal. So yeah. I want to watch this. Yes. And then now that you've got like anima out now as well, which is like, Paul Thomas Anderson's short film accompanying Tom York's new album. And I'm just really here for all these kind of short films yeah, accompanying like visual yeah. albums coming out. Um, yeah, I'm easy <laughs> oh, cool. to find it's good very stuff. Beautiful. Very briefly, can I mention Peterloo, Mike oh, yes. Lee's yeah. historical yeah. drama, which I yeah. really enjoyed. I, I loved. did not expect the amount of love that film has. Yeah, I haven't um, seen it yet, but... Everyone's raving about it. Yeah, so I'm kind I, of kicking myself for not having seen it. Very wordy, but very mm. interesting in how it looks at sort of political rhetoric and um, all of that kind of stuff. And very sort of deftly made. So I recommend checking that out. Waru, the portmanteau film from a group of uh, New Zealand Maori women filmmakers. It screened, it had a couple of screenings at Acme this year. I believe it was, the f- they said it was the first film directed by New Zealand Maori women in decades. Like, it's right. unbelievable. Wow. Um, and it really, it was really cool. It was a really interesting bunch of different short films that all sort of vaguely look at child abuse, I guess, in New Zealand in a very, um, you know, very interesting kind of ways. That was fantastic. And an honourable mention to a 2018 film, which I only just saw last week and loved, which would be... Aquaman. Really? Ooh. It's oh, so... We can't have an episode without you... Good. ...without you mentioning a superhero. I, but it's like, oh, it's so much better than all the other DC superhero really? films. It's, it's enjoyable. It's fun. Nicole Kidman shoots lasers. There's like a giant octopus playing bongos under the sea. It's like everything you could possibly imagine in a film happens in this film, including them going and fighting in the desert. Even though it's all set underwater. Yeah, right. They go okay. to the desert. It's like, well, it's that kind want. of movie. It's like, so, sure. And it's better than Shazam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it's better than Shazam. Wow, definitely. Okay. It's just so visually inventive. Mm-hmm. There's too much going on. There's like way too much going on, but it's fun. 
Mm, okay. And you don't get fun, visually inventive superhero movies all that often. So you've got to cherish them when they come along. So I recommend oh, it. was great. Cool. Honestly, honestly, okay. it was good fun. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And Nicole Kidman as a sea queen was kind of amazing. <laughs> it is kind of amazing. We haven't already seen that. And bloody Willem Dafoe and uh, like a great supporting cast. And they're all underwater and it's kind of ridiculous because they're shooting lasers and stuff at each other. <laughs> and they're riding seahorses and stuff. Like it's really out there. Yeah, it's right. Fun. Lean in. Yeah, they, yeah, they <laughs> lean in all the way. Yeah. Um, so well, those are mine. Willem Dafoe also features in my one of my honourable mentions, which is uh, The Lighthouse, um, where he stars oh. alongside Robert Pattinson. Similarly nautical. This is a fascinating film that I think hopefully will beat Myth. Um, Candy Hazel. Yeah, I really want to see it. Oh Candy. My gosh, well, if it doesn't, I will like, die. I want to see it so bad. Yeah, that was really, really, that was really uh, stood out for me. Um, also, I think one of my, uh, like, uh, Parasite almost made my top three, but another Korean film um, is called House of Hummingbird um, by a first time female director from South Korea called Kim Bora. This I really I, when I was reviewing this for, for Myth, going I just said please 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 this is amazing. It's not going to be like anything else you have. It's basically this quite long film about a fourteen year old girl who is kind of it's, it's kind of like a coming of age movie, but it's, it's just just a lot more going on. Like you really get the feel of life in suburban Seoul just so beautifully. Again, it's like a lot about attention to detail. Just, just exploding with empathy. Um, it was just very. I thought it was amazing. A beautiful score, also, which I think Nicholas Patel's score for Un- Beale Street is the best thing I've heard in years. But this was very, very close, actually. I also really, really liked Banana Split, which is another coming of age movie, which I hope is going to be at Myth as well. Mm. Um, speaking my language. Yeah, speaking your language. Yes, which uh, was yeah really exceptional. I uh, loved Minding the Gap, the do- the, dr- mm. the documentary about skaters and masculinity. Oh, yeah, I've heard wonderful. Which is on Doc Play still. If oh, anybody's right. a subscriber okay. to that. Well, I'm pretty no, sure you can find it elsewhere. Yeah. Um, of course, love Booksmart and love Pain and Glory, the Pedro Almodovar movie, which is also coming soon. Stupidly highly recommended from me. Yeah, I'm very excited to see that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent. Um, well, okay, speaking of myth, um, our next episode is going to be coming out to you minutes after the program launch of Myth uh, for 2019, which is on July 9th. So I think the plan at the moment is Eloise will be in an Uber from the airport at the point of time in which the program is released. Anne and I will be similarly um, rendezvousing with her at her apartment with microphones we'll be setting up and trying to let you know our responses and reactions and recommendations to that as soon as possible because it's kind of an ex- it's exciting. There's a lot of stuff that could be there, a lot of stuff that isn't. I probably will be disappointing. Mm-hmm. We do know a few things that are happening. The Adam Goods documentary is opening night. Uh, Maya Duren's movies are getting a th- live score from Thurston Moore. Oh, that's cool. Sampa the Great is doing a live score for Girlhood, the Celine Sharma movie. And I'm, that, I'm really hoping that means she's going to be a guest because her movie, I'm hoping, from Cannes, um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I actually thought was going to be win the Palm Door, and talking to other people, they were like, "It's, it's pretty much a lock-in for the win." And then when Parasite won, everyone was like, mm, "Okay, sure, it's great." But <laughs> we're really hoping it would be the second ever female winner of the Palm Door. Okay, I but, can't believe myths around the corner. Already. Yeah, same. Well, when That's I saw how much, yeah, yeah, when so, well Sydney Film Festival got so much stuff from Cannes that I'm like, "Well, mm. myth, you're gonna have to really step up now." I mean, the bar is very high after Adelaide yes. had Nightingale and a whole bunch of stuff oh last gosh, year, yes. and we still haven't even had a chance times. to see it. Anyway, more Myth Chat um, on July 9th. Claire, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thanks for having me. Episode. Oh, my goodness. I and hope I did okay. Spilling your thoughts. <laughs> and where Spilling can we, is accurate. <laughs> where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter, which is where I live, unfortunately, um, <laughs> which is at the Clarence W. That's Claire with N-C-E on the end. And also find me at at roughcut underscore film, which is the Twitter account that I run for my 
film website right of my friends. Mm, roughcutfilm.com? Roughcutfilm.com, yes. Excellent. That is it. Great. Okay, Anders? If he, yes. If I wanted to follow you on Twitter after I'd already <laughs> followed the Clarence at the Clarence. The Clarence. The Clarence and Rough Cut underscore film. You can find me. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Andy Ricky. And we're at the Cold Cat Pod, but you probably already know that. Thank you very much for listening. We think you're great. We think you're great. <laughs>